But just imagine, you know, your life is sort of like these two tracks, right? So I'm in the colored section of town, and then there's the white section of town. And now and again, the twain would sort of semi-meet like at the grocery store. But my mother always stood back and let the white choppers go ahead of her, right? Wow. And all of a sudden, after Brown versus the Board of Education, long after, because Georgia was one of those states that held off for a long time and would not follow, would not follow. Finally, when the Supreme Court said, that's it, and all the other courts said, that's it, you're done. Um like in the middle of the school year, we suddenly integrated. So we suddenly left our school and went to this brand new school across town, not brand new, but new to us, mm-hmm. and all of these white kids. And it was almost as if we had just been shot to the moon. From ABC, it's No Limits. I'm Rebecca Jarvis, and each week we're talking to the most bold and influential women playing at the top of their game, trying to demystify success and what it really takes to get there and all the trade-offs. Whether you're looking for answers or you just want to hear a good story, you're in the right place. Before she was an Emmy award-winning journalist here at ABC News, Deborah Roberts was a young woman growing up in the segregated South in the small town of Perry, Georgia. Those early years helped shape her curiosity, her drive, and her desire to ask questions. On today's episode, my friend and colleague Deborah Roberts shares her experiences with integration, difficult career trade-offs, and overcoming adversity. Deborah Roberts, welcome to No Limits. Yay! I've been following you on Instagram. I've been seeing all the pictures, and I've been so jealous. And I was like, well, when am I going to be on her show? So well, I'm so excited. I'm thrilled that you're here. I follow you regularly uh-huh. on Instagram. Plus, you've been just wonderful to me. I was thinking about this ahead of today's conversation. You have been such a good ally and advocate for me and I know for so many women inside of this company and it really is appreciated that that you 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 behave as a mentor to so many of us and you also set a standard. So I really respect what you Aww. do and I respect how great you treat so many Aww. people. Well, you know what? That that comes from me. That's just who I am, right? And it comes from me as a woman as a professional woman in this business, but I think also, too, as a Southern woman. It's just mm. something that I was raised with, you know? That's what you do. You reach out. You try to grab. You try to bring people along. You just reach out to people. and So that's just sort of like organically who I am, but thank you. I appreciate that. It's very authentic. I want to go over a little bit of your background. Emmy Award-winning journalist, Good Morning America, Nightline, 2020, <laughs> World News Tonight, we see you on The View. I'm exhausted right now just hearing about it. <laughs> your book, wow. Been There, Done That, with your husband, Al Roker. We've got one copy right Yay. here. You guys sitting back to back on the cover, which is very cute, with your notepads in your hands, getting yeah. it done. Um, A funny little story about that. My yes. son saw that, and he says, why are you two fighting? I said, what do you mean? He says, your backs are against each other. You look like you're just like standing off that you're fighting. I guess he's used to us fighting all the time. Anyway, <laughs> and I said, no, we're not fighting. You can look at it like we're just sort of like I'm sitting next to each other, you know, having a little fun. I'm so anyway, family wisdom say. for modern times. Yes, exactly. This is, this is the, it is a great book. And you get into also you being a mom and your children and sacrifices as a professional mom. You know, the things that a lot of people don't talk about. It was a chance to just I mean, I hate this expression because it sounds so cliche, but just kind of to own my truth, own who I am. And I mean, there are a lot of things I think over the years that I've wanted to talk about as a woman, as a mom, as a professional woman, um, as 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 a disappointed woman from time to time and not mm. putting it out there. And so it was fun to just sort of, you know, from the rooftop say, this is who I am. This has sort of made me who I am. And you know what? I'm here and I'm standing and I'm thriving, but it's not not easy, folks. It is not easy. 
Which I think is a really important thing for people to hear, because especially we were talking a minute ago about Instagram, Mm. this Instagram world that we live in now, where everything is the highlight reel. And it's very hard to appreciate or understand the underbelly of getting to that highlight reel Mm -hmm. and the moments in between that are significant trade-offs and you know, we all have our terrible days, like right. truly terrible. Right, right, We're not. I'm not talking right. about a down day. Right. I'm talking about the really icky hit the moments. Bottom, hit the that, bottom. Exactly. Yeah. Um. By the way, as a very um, as a as a purely aesthetic aside, you're also a style icon to me, <laughs> and people will see. You'll see a picture of what Deborah is wearing today. It's fantastic, yeah, as always. That's my, that's my problem. That's my that's my little uh, guilty pleasure. I guess. <laughs> Of I all the vices to have, I mean, that one's all right. So you grew up in Perry, Georgia. Small town Perry, Georgia, in the segregated South. And that's one of the things that I always find kind of interesting um, because I went to colored schools up until fourth grade. Wow. And I remember integration very well and the impact that that had on me. So, yeah, I grew up in small town Georgia with a large family of nine kids, uh, my two parents and, and all of us. And, uh, yeah, very, very simple um, striving, struggling kind of in existence. How did that shape you from, especially when you went from fourth grade to fifth grade? Well, you know what? It's interesting. It was, for me, it was a real kind of epiphany in a way because I had had this cloistered environment. I mean, just remember, and you you obviously, you know, probably grew up, I'm guessing, in the Northeast or someplace like that. But In the Midwest. All in good. the Midwest. In the Midwest, but still. But just imagine, you know, your life is sort of like these two tracks, right? So I'm in the colored section of town and then there's the white section of town. And now and again, the twain would sort of semi-meet like at the grocery store. But my mother always stood back and let the white choppers go ahead of her, right? Wow. And or at the post office. My mother would always stand back and let somebody else go ahead of her, and then she would step up. So I sort of noticed these other people in my town, but I grew up in my section of town. So I'm in my school, and black teachers, black friends, black everything. And all of a sudden, after Brown versus the Board of Education, long after, because Georgia was one of those states that held off for a long time and would not follow, would not follow. Finally, when the Supreme Court said, that's it, and all the other courts said, that's it, you're done, um, like in the middle of the school year, we suddenly integrated. So we suddenly left our school and went to this brand new school across town, not brand new, but new to us, mm-hmm. and all of these white kids. And it was almost as if we had just been shot to the moon and we're looking around at all of these little beings and we're trying to figure out who they are, who, who what they think of us. It was very, very bizarre. However, being the kid that I am, which is one who I guess has always been chatty, 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 outgoing, outgoing, outgoing in some ways, um, I wanted, I, I saw it as sort of this opportunity. My little fourth grade mind thought, this is really kind of interesting and this is intriguing and I want to make friends. And so I always sort of had this different view, I guess, of the world. I always wanted to see it as hopeful. I wanted to see it uh, even challenges as possibilities. I don't know how. I don't know where mm-hmm. that came from. But before I knew it, I not only made friendships, but began. And of course, you know, now we had access to the kinds of materials and things that we didn't have at my school. I just absorbed all of that stuff. I loved like getting in and sort of the thick of it. And so for me, it was transformative in a positive way while it was perplexing and many of the students and certainly ones in the junior high and high school had little skirmishes and there were problems here and there getting settled for me it was really intriguing about learning about this new world and i think that probably even opened me up 
beyond that uh, to my work as today, today as a journalist, mm-hmm. to just being curious and interested and wanting to find out more and wanting to know. So for me, it sort of propelled me to sort of rise above it and my fears and my worries and so forth and to try to be better and to be, um, you know, to try to be accommodating, but also to be uh, curious and to find out what was happening with these other kids. So for me, it just opened up this new world. That's so interesting. I, I didn't realize that about your story. I'm, a lot I'm, of people don't know that. I, and I also think some of those or many of those traits are the very traits that serve anyone who's a top journalist like yourself very well. That curiosity, that that interest in questioning and getting to know people and getting to know really the inside of people and what truly makes them tick. Were you thinking at a young age, I want to be a journalist? Oh, my gosh. Not at that age, but Early enough, I remember watching. I mean, I, my my cousins actually make jokes about this. I was always glued to the television, watching Walter Cronkite, and that's the way it is. <laughs> my family, the, the CBS Evening News, the channel uh, channel, um, um, I forgot what channel it was, but WMAZ was the only channel we could get in our in our hometown. So uh, CBS came in loudly and clearly. So we watched the evening news every night, like so many other families, and I was fascinated by it. So I'm coming into this period now where the tumult of the 60s is kind of receding, but the the possibility and the flower children and the hope and so forth is also starting to emerge, you know, in the 70s. And I just remember watching these reporters and particularly reporters of color, Lem Tucker, Michelle Clark, who later died in a plane crash, um, Connie Chung, all of these different looking reporters were hitting the scene. And I just remember sitting there in the in our little den on my, our shag carpet watching television and thinking, that's really cool. I'd, I'd love to do something like that. I think I could do something like that. And they were covering like the civil rights struggle and all of these really, really um, hot button kinds of stories. But I just remember being intrigued, thinking I want to do something like that. So I don't know exactly where it completely came from, but I think it was a combination of my curiosity, my sense of wanting to reach out to other people in the world, and then seeing this and thinking there's got to be more beyond my little town. Mm. There's got to be more out there that I can tap into and learn about and be a part of. And that was what I wanted. You went to the University of Georgia. UGA. Go yeah. dogs. <laughs> go dogs. Which anybody who follows you on social will see that you're you're a big fan and a big supporter. Um, the perfect alum. When you were, did you study communications then in college? I did. So in in high school, I kind of knew I wanted to go into something on television. I didn't know what. And so I, when I was accepted to the University of Georgia, I wasn't quite sure. I kind of thought theater, maybe that was it. So I enrolled in, um, I, I declared I'm going to be a theater person. I'm going to be a television <laughs> person. So I took my first theater class and all the kids were walking around in those black leotards and they were very weird and they were doing like all these <laughs> pantomimes and stuff like out in the, on the yard of the <gasps> campus. And they were just like very, very unusual kids. And I was like, this isn't exactly what I really wanted to do. This really isn't me. And then I took my very first journalism course, I think like the last quarter of my freshman year. And it was like Lucy on Charlie Brown. That's it. That's it. And I thought, this is what I want. I had this fabulous teacher who just regaled us with all these amazing, amazing stories and possibilities of what the world of journalism is about. And I thought, that's it. 
that's it. So from there on, I was like off to the races. And yes, then I began to study and do the internships and all of that stuff in college. And I had a really strong journalism department there too. So they really, really emphasized internships and getting your feet wet and getting out there so that I really was into it by my junior year Which college. Which is so, so useful, whether it was then or now, getting actually into a newsroom and doing those internships along the way. Mm-hmm. That helps differentiate you when you're actually going out for the job. Yeah. The first journalism job that you had? WMAZ-TV, which is my little station in Macon, Georgia, right next to my home. So that was my first internship. They let me come in in the summer. And I was like so fastidious about all the work that I was doing and helping out and, you know, pulling copy and doing all of this that by the end of the summer, they let me actually go on the air and do one or two reports. But not without some... Big problems. There was okay. once I went out with – because, I mean, remember those – you wouldn't remember this, but we had those huge cameras, those TK7 cameras that you had to lug around. Huge. And at this station, because it wasn't very fancy, although they had amazing ratings, it was one of those powerhouse stations that just like had like 60 share. Um, I would go out with the reporters and I would help shoot. And so I remember once going out with this one reporter and she told me everything I needed to do. And so we got back and we got this um, – she got great access to four. Benning, um, the military base mm-hmm. down there to go do this uh, story that was kind of under wraps and it was a big coup for her. And we go and we come back and we look at the footage and it turns out I was pressing on when I thought I was pressing off and I was pressing off when I thought I was pressing on. So we had a lot of shots of feet. Did you freak like, out? I absolutely beyond freaked out. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure I ran to the bathroom crying. I thought I was going to be fired right away. Not that I was really hired. I wasn't making any money, but I thought for sure they're going to get me. I was I was absolutely mortified. She was furious, furious. Anyway, um, I, I tell you that to say it was one of my very first lessons about failure and trying to recover from failure and recoup from it. And she, I don't know what I said to her, but eventually once she got off the floor from all of her tears and all of this, um, I, I, I vow to help out. I'll do whatever I can, whatever we can. She was able to reschedule the shoot. We went back out there. She actually let me go out and help her again. And um, and she got what she needed and so forth. But it was a great lesson for me about humility, about failure, about standing up again after failure and trying to prove yourself again after failure. And then eventually I went on to have a fairly uh, seamless internship <laughs> after that. But, you know, those early lessons, you probably remember those. Oh, absolutely. I mean, um, my the reel that I was that I would have been using back then was full of failure, just full of awkward, terrible moments. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the voice, air. right? Your voice. Yeah. Oh, I'm my sure gosh. Mine. The voice. Ginger oh. and I talked about this when when she was on the air because she would get a lot of early people would tell her that she like, you know, change your voice it's not working for you and i had all these people telling me i needed to lower my voice Mm. did you have Mm -hmm, you i mean you have an incredible voice well but it's something that i've come to i mean first of all i mean i had a probably a little bit of a southern accent and i just (laughs) hated that i just hate it when the girls called me deborah and i just was determined to like lose my southern accent so i worked on that myself but i also i think ultimately relaxed a little bit i'm Mm -hmm. sure i had the same high-pitched voice everybody does because you're so keyed up and you're like a deer in the headlights um and then i I was always trying to be Barbara Walters once I really realized, you know, who who the the top folks were. And I was always trying to uh, sound like Barbara. And I was always trying to. And it was just so crazy. And I remember once early in my career when somebody said to me, just be yourself. It seems like you're trying to be a journalist. You're trying to sound like a certain journalist. Be yourself. And over time, yes, I found my voice and I lowered my voice and I relaxed a little bit. (laughs) Well, and I also think that's 
completely a progression too, because I think when you when you go into journalism, at least this was my experience as well. You start out trying to emulate people who are really good, who you top admire. of the, exactly people whom you admire, and you get to a point where you're playing a role, right? And I, and I actually had somebody, um, a, a station manager, when I was starting out my career, tell me, "Don't play an anchor, be an anchor." Mm. Um, and and it was great advice, and I thought a lot about it, and it was hard for me even at that time to fully get, of course, because you don't understand what, what he was talking it meant. about. Exactly, like, I'm, I'm, I'm being an anchor. Exactly. What are you talking about? This is the script and how it works in this business, right? Exactly. But this is where I think experience does really come into play. Mm. And you can only say that in hindsight, because along the way I was rushing. It was like, I need to be in this next role by this day and right. this time. And you start to realize nothing can replace that experience. Right. Even even if you want it to, no, no. ultimately, it takes time to get there. And it takes a long time, too. I mean, yeah. we think, I mean, we live in this very um, quick gratifying uh, world right now, uh, quick gratification. But I think it definitely takes that time. It takes those mistakes. It takes just just the grueling nature of the, the business. And I mean, when I started out, I was shooting some of my own footage mm-hmm. and so forth. Um, it takes all of that and just sort of working and knowing how. I mean, when I used to do the morning cut-ins in Columbus, Georgia, I used to go in in the morning and cut my own cut-ins to go on the air. And once I screwed that up, I cut something that was wrong and it was too short or I forgot one of my tapes when I went out and I used to run my own prompter with my little with my finger with the little clicker. And I realized I forgot one of the tapes and I had to vamp when I was doing it. I was like, oh, my gosh, I'll be fired. Oh, my gosh. I'll be fired. You have to do all of that stuff, A, to understand how this business works. Yeah. And then B, to understand that you can recover from it. You can get better because of it. I mean, I was always driven to be better, to be stronger, yeah. to be, you know, more um, meaningful in my work because of those mistakes. And you're right. You can't. There's, there's no shortcut. There's no shortcut around all of that. How many cities did you live in before getting to network? Um, three. Which three. Isn't so That's bad. not. Yeah. Um, uh, Columbus, Georgia was my very first um, job out of college. Um, uh, Nashville, Knoxville, Tennessee, Orlando, Florida. And then I came to New York. My mother used to call me her career girl, which was basically um, um, another way of saying I was never going to get married. <laughs> oh, please. And then you meet she, Al Roker while you're at NBC while News, I'm right? At NBC News. More No Limits after this quick word from our sponsor. Are you hiring? Join the over 3 million businesses that use Indeed.com for hiring. You can post a job in minutes and manage your candidates from an easy-to-use dashboard. Post your next job on the world's number one job site, Indeed.com. My mother used to call me her career girl, which was basically um, um, another way of saying I was never going to get married. <laughs> oh, and then you meet she, Al Roker while you're at NBC while News, I'm right? At NBC News. It was uh, I, I was very new um, at NBC, and I was filling in on the Today Show, and he was filling in on the Today Show because he was not yet a full time player there. He was um, at WNBC, and we uh, we filled in, and I was like so sh- you know nervous, and I was shaking. I was filling in for Deborah Norville on the news desk, and he was filling in for Willard Scott and it was my birthday and I didn't want to tell anybody it was my birthday but I kind of wanted somebody to know it was my birthday and I was like so I felt so sad it was like when I went away to college my birthday was always in you know September 20th right after school started well here I started a new job 
close to the time of my birthday. And it was like that same sad feeling again, like nobody knows. And somehow he and I started talking and I must have revealed it was my birthday. And he said, well, somebody should take you out to lunch. And he said, I can't do it today, but how about in a couple of days? I'll take you out to lunch. And I said, that's so sweet of you. So he took me out to lunch and we kind of hit it off as friends. We became friends and he was really a supporter of my work and he was always very, very nice and sending emails and so forth. And, you know, no real sparks or anything like that. I just liked him. (laughs) He likes to say he wore me down. Uh, because I was just like, he's a nice guy. He's, a nice, he's sweet. He's not, well, whatever. And I was not interested in him. And then eventually, 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 over time, um, I started looking at him a little differently and thinking about him a little differently. And as he says, he wore me down. <laughs> this is the exact same thing that happened with my husband You're and I. You're kidding. Yeah, we went, so we worked, um, we, we worked, I started my career in finance and we sat back to back in a cubicle in finance and he was a friend to me, but I never really thought of him in that way. Uh-huh. Until all of a sudden I did. And it was like this aha moment for me. This this light went off. I also I don't know if you thought this way, but my mom would always say to me, never date anyone you work with. Ah. So I originally would just not even fathom that idea that wouldn't even come into play. Exactly. Yes. Ultimately, he said he was going to quit. And when he said he was going to quit, that's kind of where my aha moment Uh came along where I was like, wait, I won't see you every day. I'm going to miss you. If I'm going to miss you, that must mean I like, I like you. you. Exactly. You know, sometimes it's kind of weird like that. Somebody who's like right in plain sight. And I was dating all these other people and I had a different idea of mine and I wanted to marry somebody maybe in finance. Here I am in New York City. I socialized with a lot of people whose you know partners or boyfriends or husbands were. And I thought, you know, that was probably my destiny. I wasn't thinking about anybody in, you know, my, in my universe. Right. And I just so I wasn't even thinking about that. But I think the more I kept struggling out, dating people who I thought were terrific and then he turned out to be not to be or a guy who like didn't seem to want to commit or, you know, whatever, just like striking out. Then finally, I just looked at him one day. You know, I don't even know what, but he had done something really lovely. And I thought, you know, he's kind of a nice guy. He's, well, there's nothing wrong with dating a nice guy. Yes. And, uh, you know, he tells a story differently because I went away to the Olympics to cover the Barcelona Olympics. And I asked him if he would look in on my apartment, maybe water my plants and just check out my apartment because I was gone for about three weeks. And um, he likes to tell the story. Anybody else would have gone through my, my uh, lingerie drawer and check things out or whatever. Instead, he goes to the Snoop. kitchen. He snoops in the oven like to see what I've what, whatever. Is it a clean oven a or a dirty oven? It had cardboard in it. <laughs> cardboard and I mean I didn't cook and he loved to talk about that and so anyway he stocked my refrigerator and left some fresh flowers so when I came back that's awesome he was like welcome back and I was like you know doggone it he's a nice guy and then I think uh, soon after that I we went out on our first date oh I love that yeah you you talk a lot in the book about balancing the fact that both of you have these incredible careers you're both in the spotlight uh and, and there are some trade-offs right. to that. Right. There are big trade-offs to that. Well, I mean, even like right now, he's at the Olympics in Pyeongchang, and I'm home with my son. Our daughter has gone off to college, but I'm home with our son. And, you know, even just with my career, you know, I'm busy. I'm traveling. I'm doing my thing. So I'm kind of keeping the home fires burning right now. And, um, you know, everything's kind of great. But then today I got a call. Like, can you do the story tomorrow? And, um, of course, I want to do the story tomorrow. It sounded really fascinating. But I'm thinking, is it in New York? Do I have to travel? And if I do, that's cool. But let me figure out the moving parts. Okay. But it turns out. It's here in New York, so that works out. But I'm sure there's bound to be something else in these two weeks that he's gone that will happen that I'll have to do. So there's a lot of juggling that happens. And one of the things we do talk about in the book, and I think Al would acknowledge it 
probably grudgingly, um, no matter how much we are on this, I think, for the most part, equal playing field these days, a lot of men are just as invested and in, in, involved in their family life. It kind of falls on mom, kind mm-hmm. of falls on the the, the, the wife. And um, I'm the one who makes sure, I think, for the most part, everything is smooth sailing and so forth. Or maybe not so smooth sailing, but um, there's Pick-ups so much. from school, lunches. That's exactly right. Or just something else that happened or a little bit of a problem. Or, or, or maybe just something we need to shore my son up with. Like, wouldn't it be great for him to, like, start chess again? Okay, so let's figure out how we can get chess going in this whole thing. So I'm on the phone. I'm doing that. And then our dog had surgery the other day. So the phone was ringing literally just now as I was coming in here with the vet, just checking to see how she's doing. You know, you, you do all this juggle Is she work. okay? She's okay. Okay, she, good. She I had a minor, sure. thank you, Pepper. She had a minor, she had a couple little kind of uh, growths like that looked like oh. warts, but they wanted to make sure they're okay. And she she looks like she's fine. But, but there's so much of that stuff. Yeah, the trade-offs and the juggling. And I think that for me, because family is so important over the years, and I talk about this in the book, honestly, um, I feel like I gave up a little bit more. And I felt a little resentful about that mm-hmm. for, for a period of time because, you know, I was the one who got pregnant. Uh, I, we went through IVF on two occasions. I had to deal with all of that hormonal rage as well as shooting my stories and, you know, doing all the things that I do. Um, and then, you know, take the time off work and try to restart the career after two or three months of being away. And everybody just like cheered him on when he came back after, you know, wow, your wife had a baby. Oh, how great. And he didn't quite miss a beat. Right. And, you know, we really do still have to take the hit at the end of the day. And you have to either make peace with that and be happy about where you are and what you've been able to carve out for yourself. Or you can be upset and a little resentful about it. Right. Well, and it sounds like you were offered an opportunity at Good Morning America that you ended up having to turn down or you chose, chose to turn it, to down. Turn it yeah. down. Yeah. And I, and I was so shocked in myself because it was the newsreader job and I had wanted that job. I had wanted this that job for so long. This is what you worked for the I whole worked time. For. And I had filled in on the show enough. I just, I, it was so seamless. I felt so great about it. But then I gave birth to my daughter after, you know, a miscarriage and after having gone through a multiple bouts of, uh, of IVF. How many rounds of IVF did you end up going through? I was probably at my last bit with Leela and my particular doctors didn't want to do more than three or four. So let's say I had already done, I think, two or three. Mm-hmm. I think by the time I got pregnant with her, I've kind of lost, you know, the, the complete memory of it. But and it's a lot, too. We're not talking like just going and, you know, you're taking shots and you're, you know, you're monitoring yourself. You're going in for blood work every day. You're making sure that, you know, you're producing those eggs and, you know, all of that. stuff. It is a real deal. It's a real, real ordeal. And I remember Al giving me shots in the butt and, you know, just all this stuff. And once being on an assignment in Florida and I didn't want to miss, you know, my ovulation and I had to have my shots. And and we found like a doctor on call. Now today with, you know, with Uber and all the technological advances, that's not a big deal. But 21 years ago, that was a big deal to be able to find this doctor on call who came to my hotel room and gave me my shot in my butt so that I could promptly go and do my interview and make it back home the next day and I wouldn't miss my cycle. Which, by the way, no one watching your interview ever knew about. (laughs) No, no, no. You like think about these two simultaneous pressure cookers that are happening. Exactly. So I'm freaked out about that and I'm a little sore in the butt from having done that. But now I've got to go and like do my interview and like, you know, hear somebody talk about like some loss in their life or whatever the story was about. So I couldn't miss a beat with that, but I'm doing all of that. So the point is, by the time we finally did get pregnant and by the time I did deliver this beautiful baby girl, Leela, um, I was shocked and not 
not prepared for the feelings of ambivalence that I would have mm-hmm. about going back to work right away because I knew if I was going to do that job and the show was turning over at the time and they were bringing in new anchors and all of this, I knew I was going to have to just run in there and give it my all. I mean, I was going to have to prove everything because, you know, the show demanded it. And I just became nervous. Number one, what if the what if the show makes more changes and something else doesn't go right and then I've got this new baby and I've sacrificed this time and I just was like shocked at myself for feeling a little ambivalent about it. And I thought, well if I'm ambivalent, maybe the answer is I need to stay home with her a little longer. And so to my surprise, um, I called David Weston, our head of news at the time, back and said I think I'd like to pass this time and maybe the next time. I couldn't believe I said that. And I think he couldn't believe I said that because he just knew that I wanted this job, which I did. And um, and it was not easy. It was not easy to do that because, you know, in this business, um, your bosses like to hear yes, yes, yes. Gung-ho, gung-ho, gung-ho. And, and, you know, and again, this is 20 years ago, too. And it was probably before we are feeling as comfortable today as, as we um, uh, are uh, as comfortable as we are now with women sort of juggling these things and being a little bit more open about mm-hmm. how dif- difficult it is. So I had to pay the price when I came back. And nobody said that. And I, I wouldn't say that anybody, you know, slammed any doors in my face. But the opportunities just weren't quite there for me because I feel like I had sort of signaled that I was on the mommy track. And, um, you know, everybody was great and welcoming and all of that. But I think that what happens as a woman is sometimes when you make those decisions, you are signaling that you're, you know, you're putting something else as a priority over this news business. Right. And that's not easy. Not easy at all, especially after you have given your entire life to this job Mm -hmm. and this profession and to every single step in between all of the things that you've passed up, the other joys in life that you haven't been able to enjoy. Birthdays that I had missed, anniversaries, my friend's wedding. I mean, I've missed a lot of things over the years because of the job. So I had sacrificed a lot. And now for me to suddenly just say, I'm going to put myself and my daughter first, it was it was it was tough. How do you think of it now looking back at all of it? Would you have done anything differently well, I've, I think I've evolved to a different place. For a long time after that, I regretted it. Not so much regretted being with Leela because I was so happy that I had that extra time without the stress of rushing back to work. I will never, ever, ever look back on that and trade that for a second because I think we bonded in such ways and I was there in so many ways that were just so gratifying. But I did for a few years look back and think, what if? I wonder if I might have been on that track. I wonder if I might have gotten even that job after that. Yeah. I wonder if I might have even you know, been a bigger star. I wonder if I might have, you know, done this and that or been offered this or that if I had not said no at that critical moment. I I think that that really haunted me for a very long time. And it also led me to feel a little bit of anger toward my husband for a while because I felt like he didn't have to make those choices, but I did. And nobody made me do it. It was just something I felt internally. I don't think he felt that. But eventually, and I don't know that there was any one aha moment, but eventually, I think just as I began to sort of, I don't want to say rebuild, but sort of really get back into the flow in a really meaningful way and to sort of reestablish myself and to make it very, very clear here, you know, the kind of journalist I am and I think to be rewarded for that. And the types of work that you really 
care about and yeah. value. Eventually, I was able to look back and think, and I think this is also my spiritual development, too. I think I just started to look back at life thinking everything sort of prepares you for where you are and who you are. And looking back with regret is never, ever um, um, fruitful. And I think I finally hit a point where I thought, I'm not looking back. I'm enjoying who I am now. And it was my brother, my wise brother, a retired military, kind of gruff, you know, uh, a soul, uh, talking to me one time when I was sort of, I don't know, complaining about something at work and uh, something that I wanted to do and I wasn't doing or whatever. And he, he just sort of broke it down for me. And he said, Deborah, look at it this way. You've got these two beautiful children. You've got this great career. You're a mom. You're living this lovely life in New York City. Um, you're doing all these amazing things with your life. And he said, and you're also, uh, you know, sort of coming and going and shooting these stories and, and having these experiences and so forth. He said, seems to me like you got a pretty good life. And I thought, you know what? I think he's right. Yeah, I think he's right. So why am I looking back with, you know, with 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 regret or with concern or when when really I should just look at what be in the present and mm-hmm. I'm having a great life and I'm doing some amazing stories now. And I've hit a place at, at ABC where I'm at ABC. <laughs> I've had a hit an amazing place here at ABC where I feel like I'm just doing all kinds of fascinating stories on Good Morning America, on Nightline, mm-hmm. on World News, and on 2020, my main gig. So what do I have to complain about? Nothing. This, well, I, I really respect that, and I really respect you sharing all of that, because I think it's, for me, it's important for me to hear, and I imagine that it's important for other people, other women who are listening it's to It's not easy it to well. admit. Those are, those are truths that are not easy to admit, and that was one of the things I wanted to talk about in this book. I wanted to put it all out there, that it's not all Instagram, beautiful, fun, happy, you know, whatever, that we go through a lot of things as people, as women, as professional women, as, you know, spouses. But, you know, you can also find a way to make it useful, to grow from them, and to just make that part of your journey in a positive way. I completely agree, and I completely respect it. Looking back, by the way, you have also an incredible career. You've interviewed every big name I could think of right now. Is there a moment or a a time where you felt like, this is it. This is the interview that I've always wanted. You know, uh, people ask me that often when I'm out even traveling and speaking to groups like I know you do. I, don't, I wouldn't say um, there's any one person. I mean, of course, we all want to interview, you know, the, 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 the big international newsmakers, I suppose. But, I've, you know, I've interviewed Michelle Obama. I've interviewed, you know, um, John Lewis, um, um, all kinds of interesting people. And also, too, just those regular moms who lost a child who wants to come on television to talk about it or, uh, you know, somebody who narrowly escaped death or uh, one of my favorite interviews I did in Ethiopia, a young woman who was an Ethiopian-American who just emailed me, by the way, the other day just to just check in and say hello, Lydia is her name, um, who was going back to Ethiopia to find her mother because she only knew the story, which was that her mother gave her up at birth, mm. but she never knew the details. And Lydia was a, was a, um, a double amputee. She had lost both of her legs um, and and she knew there was some kind of a fire, but she never knew the story. So she went back and we went on this journey with her, not knowing what we were going to find, just sort of just going along um, just to see what would happen. And she did find her mom in this remote village in Ethiopia. And I get goosebumps thinking yeah. about it because we didn't know. It looked like it was gonna, wasn't going to happen. And then finally, like at night, and we're in this village. Of course, there 
no lights. There's like kerosene lamps and such. And she's been waiting and she's been trying and people have been trying to come. They're uh, only communicating through like radio, ham radios and such. But somebody knows her mother lives in this place or whatever, word of mouth. And they finally find her. And like at midnight, this tiny, beautiful Ethiopian woman in this like silk scarf walks into um, the room that we were staying in with her and just sees her daughter. And there's a moment they stand there and there's the, the resemblance is unmistakable and just kisses her daughter, kisses her daughter, kisses her daughter. Hasn't seen her, of course, in 30 something years since she gave her up. And um, she spoke Amharic and she didn't speak um, English. And Lydia did still speak some Amharic. And they sat there and she told her the whole story, which was basically she sacrificed. She was injured in, in, in the cook fire. Her mother had had a seizure and the baby fell over and her legs were burned. And she was at this hospital and she'd been treated um, for a long time. And these missionaries were looked, looking after her. But the mom and, the, and her father couldn't afford to stay away from their children and take care of her. So they gave her up to the missionaries. And they just prayed that she would get a better life. They gave her up with the hope that they were doing the right thing for her. And she wound up being educated. She went to, she came to the United States, went to college here, made a life in Seattle, wow. made a beautiful life with, with, with the, her three children. And now here she finds the mom who made the ultimate sacrifice for her daughter. Oh, my gosh, I'm getting teary just thinking I, about it. It's an incredible it's story. It's an incredible story. So I have to say that is still one of my favorite stories because it was just so serendipitous. We didn't know what we were going to find. And it just turned out to be this magical story. I sometimes put myself in this mindset of when you're in a moment like that, seeing that as a journalist, that's where I feel the most lucky for mm-hmm. this job. Because I think to be a fly on the wall and see humanity like this, mm-hmm. it's a rare it's a rare occasion that you'd get to actually. When would you get to that. do that? When would you go to the outskirts to the to some little remote village in Ethiopia and spend the night, you know, um, and hearing monkeys out, you know, just nearby, you know, in the being in, in slightly the, scared and being slightly like, being being terrified in a way. Like I hope everything's okay here and sleeping like on this cot in a I sleeping hope this bag. Is a good idea. And just yeah, exactly. And not even sure about about the the plane. One of her friends flew us in this little prop plane, oh and gosh. I thought to myself as we're flying, is he really a pilot? I hope he really knows. What he's doing i mean all of these things yeah but it was such an adventure and that's what i love about what we do we get to do we get to take off on these adventures on a regular basis whether it's here in the states or whether it's someplace you know abroad and i mean there's nothing that can ever replace that to me in excitement toughest lesson along the way toughest lesson along the way to forgive yourself and to realize whether it's personally or whether it's professionally forgive yourself and to know that you can get better you can get stronger and you will come back you know the better for it whatever catastrophe disaster whatever happens to you in any shape or form knowing that you can actually stand up and you can that resilience will make you stronger that is such a tough lesson for all of us and i learned it all the time even with my son who's got some learning disabilities and i see him you know rise to the occasion and he's so resilient and i think that is one of the biggest lessons in life. Resilience just makes you better. I assume you've gotten a lot of advice over the course of your career. <laughs> What's the worst advice? Ooh, the worst advice. Wow. Um, hmm. I don't generally ask people a lot of advice. I try to go a lot from gut. Mm-hmm. But I think maybe, you know, I think if anybody has ever told me to sort of go for sort of the short term, to try to do something a little quicker, to to, to, to make a move that is going to position me in a place that's quicker, Um I, I don't think that's always been the best advice because I think that you sometimes you have to take the long route. And I think any any shortcut, anybody who's ever given me advice to do something that's a shortcut to something, I wouldn't say it's always been bad, but I would say that's probably not the best advice. 
Deborah Roberts. Thank you so much wow. for joining me oh on No Limits. Oh my gosh, it's so fun talking to you. I love this conversation. The book is called Been There, Done That. And of course, you can see Deborah on ABC News regularly on 2020, Good Morning America, World News Tonight, Nightline, and sometimes The View. And I love watching you and I oh. love hanging out with you. You're such a class act and you do such a great job. And it's great being pals with you here at ABC. Likewise. Mm-hmm. Thank you. And now it's time for our No Limits Entrepreneur of the Week, where we feature one of our listeners who's building something of her own. And our No Limits Entrepreneur this week is Aria Lopez. She is the CEO of 2020 Shift, which is a career platform that helps professionals gain the skills they need to get hired in the technology and media industries, while also assisting companies to attract and retain diverse talent. And we first met Ariel at our live taping, our last live taping of the No Limits episode at the overarching success power lunch panel. So we really were impressed by Ariel and we're really excited to feature her this week because Ariel is a North Carolina native who attended East Carolina University. She studied public relations. After graduation, she went on to work in the digital media and tech space and eventually became a career coach at General Assembly, another great company. She started working on 2020 Shift after realizing the struggles for both professionals and companies to find the right match in the tech industry. She says that throughout her career, she recognized the massive skills gap that exists in the market, and she wanted to do something to help with that problem while also increasing the amount of women and minorities in the tech space. She began working on 2020 Shift as a side project for a couple of years before finally deciding to take the leap in 2016. She says that by building strategic partnerships, an awesome team, and identifying the right mentors, she felt it was the right time. Ariel says that at that point, she had already secured her first few paying partners, great, and had found an angel investor that agreed to cover costs. Wonderful. She says that for entrepreneurs, she doesn't think there's ever truly a right time to take a leap, but it's about making a decision to be mentally strong, put faith over fear, and be determined to succeed regardless of the risks you have to take. Ariel's been able to finance her company through a mix of everything, personal savings, friends, family, crowdfunding, and corporate deal flow. She tells us that they're now preparing to raise their seed round of funding as they're developing a new product that they believe is venture-worthy and will let them scale and maximize reach. Ariel's advice to aspiring entrepreneurs for financing is to save as much as you can before you take the leap. She says that life comes at you fast and you'll appreciate that you did. She says her biggest obstacle as an entrepreneur was to overcome the battle within. Ariel says that it takes a certain type of person to thrive in uncertainty. And as a startup founder, it's just that. She told us there are so many days where you question if you're doing the right thing, why you're doing what you're doing, if you'll ever reach your goals. She says that being able to train your mind to be positive and be relentless is a saving grace, and it is what winners are made of. If she could go back to the start and give herself one piece of advice, it would be to ask questions first and build later. Ariel says that many people neglect doing customer market research in the beginning of their venture, and that's why the majority of businesses fail. She says that learning lean methodology and how to build products and services around users' needs, not just what you think is cool, is a game changer. Some really practical wisdom there, Ariel. Congratulations on what you've built with the 2020 shift. 
We're really excited to continue to watch you grow, especially because you're helping people uh, build out their own careers, which is such a noble objective and something that we strive for here at No Limits as well. So congratulations on being our No Limits Entrepreneur of the Week. I wish you and the 2020 shift continued success. Remember, listeners, if you or someone you know should be featured here on No Limits, send me your emails at nolimitswithrjpodcast at gmail.com. We've been getting a lot of them lately. I am reading them, every single one of them taking them seriously. Some of you have even sent ideas for episodes and hopefully if you've been listening along, you've heard us incorporate some of that. So thank you. I really do love hearing from you. As always, you can find me on Facebook, Instagram, Snapchat, Twitter, and LinkedIn at Rebecca Jarvis. You can use the hashtag No Limits. I want to give a shout out to our fabulous team here that makes this happen week after week. My producer, Taylor Dunn, our editor, Michelle Boncardo, our research assistant, Annie Osakwe, and the team here at ABC Radio, Elizabeth Russo, David Rind, Josh Cohan, Andrew Kelb, and Steve Jones. Thank you. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts.